Hey, during World War II, automobile tires were in great demand. Most of the tires manufactured in the United States were being shipped off and used in the war effort. So if you purchased a car, it was important that it had good tires. And usually a bad tire, one that couldn't hold the proper pressure, could be identified with a swift kick. Thus the expression, kicking the tires. Today, that phrase applies to any kind of physical hands-on inspection. Examine a used car on the lot, or drive by a house you're thinking about buying, or maybe browse a book you're interested in reading. What are you doing? You're kicking the tires. And that's what we're doing here in 1 Timothy. In our last study together, we walked around the first three chapters. We gave 1 Timothy 1 through 3 a once over. Well, this week we're going to do the same with the last three chapters, chapters 4 through 6. And there's one certainty in this book. Paul is gung-ho for the church. At the end of chapter 3, he calls it the family of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Paul marvels, great is the mystery of godliness. And he marvels that God has entrusted that mystery to the church. At times, observing a church can be deceptive. On the surface, we look like one of those little smart, smart cars. But then when you pop the hood, you find there's muscle car power under the hood. Paul is teaching Timothy and us how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. The church is a big deal to God, and it needs to be a bigger deal to us. Today, we're going to kick some more tires here in 1 Timothy, and hopefully... We're going to let God kick some of our tires because we don't want to pop under pressure. We want to keep rolling with Jesus. We want to stay on track. And these are the truths that helps the church stay right where it needs to be between the white lines of God's will. Chapter 4 begins. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now you need to realize that not all that's labeled spiritual is biblical or godly. Walk into the religion and spirituality section at Borders Books and you're going to find titles from everybody from Max Licato to the Dalai Lama. In fact, today's world is fascinated with all things spiritual. New Age mysticism, Eastern idolatry, Native American spiritualism, prosperity doctrine, pop psychology, even conservative evangelicalism. It's all sitting there on the same shelf. And trust me, not everything in that sandwich is equally nutritious. That's why in the first three chapters of Timothy... Paul tells his protege to use the Bible biblically, to pick out ideas contrary to sound doctrine, to fight the fight of faith. He says to the elders that they need to be apt to teach. And he says of the church that it is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Why all this emphasis on right doctrine? Because we're told that the closer we get to the last days, false teaching is going to abound. It's a shock to a new Christian when you realize that not every so-called Bible teacher really teaches the Bible. 
Some speak, as Paul puts it, lies in hypocrisy. Paul tells Timothy that there are deceiving spirits in the world. There are demons spewing out false doctrine. When Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. These fallen angels are now deceiving spirits or demons, and they're inspiring false teachers. Their goal is to get you to depart from the faith. And they do so by writing books, hosting seminars, and creating websites, and appearing on Oprah. They even wear skinny little ties and ride bicycles and knock on your front door. And here's Satan's only advantage in the battle. He lies shamelessly. Demonically inspired teachers tell people what they want to hear or what they think they'd like to hear. Unlike God, Satan has no obligation to the truth. Hey, don't say I didn't warn you, but if you open up yourself to all things spiritual, you'll eventually get visited by one of these demons, by one of these evil spirits. This is why we need discernment. We're going to do a whole week on sound doctrine, but in the next few verses, Paul gives us here a rundown of what these false teachers are emphasizing. They're forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Notice the false teacher forbids what God considers good. Mormons don't drink coffee. God created those little coffee beans, and I'm glad he did. Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians, but God created meat, praise the Lord, sausage and beef. Catholicism denies its priests the opportunity to marry and enjoy a healthy sexual relationship. That's why I'm no priest. And it puts an undue pressure on those poor guys. Hey, when God created beans and meat and sex, he said it was good. And he sure hadn't changed his mind. Hey, you please God not by abstinence, but by thanking God for his blessings and then using them for his glory. Holiness isn't about what I can give up for God. It's about what God gave up to save me and to change me. Biblically, biblical spirituality involves the work of Jesus on the cross. And the Holy Spirit in my heart. Not just my self-effort or my self-denial. I love what Paul says to Timothy in verse 4. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Notice this. You know what this means? This means when you sit down with that big bowl of chocolate ice cream, from that Briar's chocolate ice cream, and you thank God for it, and then you dig in and eat it, it becomes an act of worship. That's what it means. Next time you and your wife lock the bedroom door and get in that hoochie-coochie mood, if you'll just pray ahead of time and read some scripture, man, you've made it as good as a worship service. You sure have. We honor God by thanking Him for all of His blessings and then jumping in and enjoying them. Paul tells Timothy in verse 6, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables. 
Paul's talking here about superstitions and speculations. It amazes me. Christians get preoccupied in all kinds of weird things. UFOs and conspiracy theories and Mayan prophecies. All the while, their Bible sits on the shelf. Why aren't you picking up the truth and reading it? Did you know that even in our modern technological society, 20 million Americans still carry on their person a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm? Paul encourages Timothy to reject these silly superstitions, to give himself to Scripture, to the truth of God. And then he says to Timothy, and exercise yourself toward godliness. You know about these health clubs, don't you? You know, a health club works off a business model where they sell far more memberships than their facility can accommodate. You know why? Because they know that after a few weeks, most people no longer visit. Because exercise is hard work. And godly exercise is still exercise. It involves daily Bible study and prayer and fellowship and going to church and keeping it up for a while. It's exercise. And Paul adds, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. You know, all exercise requires effort and discipline. You don't always feel like running or working out, nor do you always feel like going to church or reading your Bible. Godly exercise and physical exercise are similar. They both require hard work, but they're similar until they come to their benefits because one's much more beneficial than the other. Physical exercise profits you a little, Paul says. Visit the gym regularly and it'll help you out for a few years. I mean, one day you'll be a real good-looking corpse if you exercise. But come to church, get into your Bible, hang out with other Christians, spiritual exercise, that'll benefit you for all eternity. You know, I've heard it said, you don't stop exercising because you grow old. You grow old because you stop exercising. And the same is true with godliness. If your Christian life is growing old or stale, it's probably because you've stopped working out spiritually. Then verse 9 tells us, this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth. You know, at the time, Timothy was probably in his mid to late 20s. And this was an issue for him. I can remember when I was younger, I ran into folks who refused to come to Calvary Chapel because they, they wanted an older pastor. For some reason, that's no longer an issue. Recently, though, Pastor James, he told me that since he turned 50, he thought he could finally pastor, that he had finally gained some credibility. And yet the truth is, spiritual maturity has very little to do with age. Paul tells Timothy not to be intimidated because of his youth. There's no age requirement on the calling of God. Jesus uses young and old alike. In fact, here's the good news for a young pastor. Just give it some time. <laughs> Your problem will take care of itself. You will get older. In the meantime, there's nothing you can do about your age, but there is a lot you can do about your character. 
Paul tells Timothy, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. All leaders should be examples. And then he adds, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. You've heard the expression, leaders are readers. It's true. Timothy needs to study his Bible. That's what Paul's saying. And do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. God gives us spiritual gifts, supernatural enablings. Romans 12 lists several gifts, teaching, leading, mercy, helps, exhortation or encouragement, giving, prophecy. But here's the rule with spiritual gifts. You use them or you lose them. And that's why Timothy needs to revive the spiritual gift that God has given him. Then Paul tells him, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk a lot about a pastor's role in the church. You know, a pastor juggles a lot of balls, but there's one ball that a pastor can't drop. I must study thoroughly and deliver God's word faithfully. Once a pastor told his church, he says, you can have my feet or my mind, but you can't have both. And this is what he meant. He meant, if I'm always running to meetings and hospital visits and counseling sessions, I'll never have time to give my mind to the word of God. His teaching is the pastor's most pressing priority. Hopefully you'll forgive me if I miss you in the hospital. Hopefully you will. But I'll tell you, you'll never forgive me if I teach false doctrine and I send somebody to hell. He said, meditate. Give yourself entirely to these things, Timothy. Make sure of yourself and your doctrine. But you see, this is why the church is a family. I might be a big brother, but I'm not the only person in the family. I mean, families are bigger than any one person. That's why there's multiple siblings and parents. That's why we can all take care of ourselves. And in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul tells Timothy to make sure the church acts like a family. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters with all purity. You know, one of the great tragedies of our mobile society is the breakdown of the extended family. Today, the safety net is gone. Too many people are home alone. There's nobody to learn from or lean on. We lack that support system that once existed. And this is why the church needs to function as an extended family. Older folks, mentoring younger folks, everybody treating each other as siblings. And and, and let me state the obvious. This kind of interaction, it doesn't just happen on Sundays. That's why you got to reach out and and, and enjoy some fellowship and come on Wednesdays and and have people over to your house and go over to their house and, and fellowship together. Hey, let me encourage you to break the ice, to reach out. Start making some family. And then speaking of God's family, there were certain members in the family that needed special care. Paul writes in verse 3, Honor widows who are really widows. Reminds me of the two ladies that were sharing a hospital room. One was the wife of an Episcopal priest. The other was a widow. 
And every day the priest would come from church. Of course, he'd still be wearing his clerical collar. He'd come in, he'd check on his wife. The two of them would sit there. They would talk and talk. And, and then he'd walk over and he'd give her this warm, long, passionate hug followed by a big kiss. One day after the priest had left, the widow in the other bed, she sort of rolled over and she said to her roommate, she said, wow, I've been a member of my church for 50 years and I've never gotten that kind of treatment. (laughs) You know, apparently there were a few widows in Timothy's flock who also felt slighted by the church. In Bible times, 99.9% of the workforce was male. That meant that a widow had very few opportunities in employment. Thus, when a family lost its breadwinner, the church had to step in. And here's the question that Pastor Timothy faced. How far does a church go to supply financial help to needy families? And here's the two truths that all churches have to deal with. There are unlimited needs, but there are limited resources. And that means some discernment is required. And in chapter 5, Paul tells Timothy how to allocate the benevolence. And notice the overarching principle again, verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. Apparently, not all widows are what Paul would call really widows. You could also say, not all homeless people are really homeless. Not all poor folks are really poor. Hey, before you can determine someone's status, an investigation is required. I mean, a homeless man might be homeless because he gambled away his mortgage. A poor man might be poor because he spent his paycheck on booze. We should never pass out God's money to people who are going to turn around and use it for evil. You've got to understand the need before you help the needy. And Paul tells us how. In the coming weeks, we're going to take an in-depth look here at chapter 5. But this morning, we're just going to kick some tires, kind of kind of breeze through, get a flavor of it. Verse 4 tells us, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. I mean, kids need to give back to the woman who's given so much to them, who's nursed them and changed them and fed them. An elderly mom is the children's responsibility, not the church. And a church shouldn't assume somebody else's responsibility. I think the same applies to an able-bodied man. It's his responsibility to get out and work. Our benevolence should encourage him to get a job, not be irresponsible. Then verse 5 tells us, Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. Paul says support the people that are seeking God before you try to meet the needs of a lot of folks who are dead to God. You know, sometimes our benevolence helps a lost person grow further lost. It does. I once saw this family, they were rummaging through a Goodwill drop box. I felt so sorry for this family until I watched them load up their truck and then roll across the parking lot and walk into the liquor store. Hey, we need to avoid assisting folks who are dead to God when they're servants of God who need our help. Notice verse 8, he says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, 
He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you're an able-bodied man with a job, yet you refuse to work hard and bring home your paycheck and pay your bills and support your family, the Bible says you're worse than a blasphemer. And that's how this church is going to treat you. you got no business calling yourself a Christian. Did I make that clear enough? But this verse also applies to churches. The church needs to take care of its own. Our first obligation is to our members. Then we can reach out. Paul says in verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. You know, some scholars believe that the early church had a special order of widows who served full time. And to qualify for this ministry, you had to put up a few years of good testimony. And some investigation was required. If you come in and you're looking for a handout, we're going to sit down with you. We're going to talk to you. We're going to talk about what kind of life you've lived. What are you doing now? We're going to investigate before we seek to help. Verse 11 tells us, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation, because they have cast off their first faith. In other words, the long-term solution for these younger widows wasn't a ministry, it was a marriage. They just needed a husband. You know, it's interesting. When folks come to the church for help, usually they are very desperate. I understand that. They're desperate. And without realizing it, we can create in them an unhealthy dependence on us. You know, the church isn't their long-term answer. Jesus is their answer. And here Paul tells Timothy not to bail out a sister who really needs to wait on God and trust in God. First, you need to give Jesus a chance to meet her need. Maybe provide her a husband. He says, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. I mean, you provide all of a woman's needs, and she'll turn to idleness. She'll end up a gossip. She'll sit around all day and watch soap operas and Oprah. Our benevolence could turn a woman into a desperate housewife if we're not careful. Verse 14 Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. Again, the answer for some of these younger girls was to marry. Have a few babies. Buy you a house. Get back to the long-term task of raising a family. And then verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows... Let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. In other words, if individual church members can meet certain needs, they should. This then frees up the church to minister in other ways. Remember, the church is faced with the task of meeting unlimited needs with limited resources. And that's why we have to handle these issues wisely. Now, verse 17 changes the subject. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Here's my favorite verse. Pay the pastor double his salary. (laughs) What a great verse. That, That should be a memory verse right there. Just hand him an extra paycheck from time to time. That's a good way to treat him. Give him double honor. Well, as good as that sounds, there's probably a better interpretation. If you got a good pastor who labors in the word, here's how you double his pay. You give him a check, but you also give him your respect. That's double honor. And for me, the respect is far more valuable than the check. This past week, uh, I got a lot of emails, people sending me emails, sharing their appreciation for my 30 years of service. And and I'm telling you, I I can't tell you how much their words encouraged me and blessed me. Trust me, I appreciate the paycheck, but not near as much as I do the respect. It's double honor. And then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 to support his point. He says, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The laborer is worthy of his wages. I guess if Paul wants to compare me to an ox, he can. Even an ox is allowed to eat from the grain he's grinding. And likewise, a pastor should be paid from the fruits of his ministry. You know, some churches pray, Lord, keep our pastor humble and we'll keep him poor. That's not God's attitude. He he says, if he teaches well, pay him well. And here's another way to honor a pastor or an elder. Verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. You know, church leaders are subject to vicious gossip at times. Satan loves to slander. Remember, he lies shamelessly. And when someone accuses a pastor, make sure that the charge gets substantiated. Don't entertain hearsay. And yet neither should a leader get a free pass. Verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. You know, more so than a member, when you discipline a church leader, it sends a wake-up call. No one is above censure. This is why Paul challenges Timothy. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels That you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. In other words, prove a man before you promote a man. It's better to test a man beforehand than to discipline him afterwards. Paul warns us all here in verse 22. He says, nor share in any other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And, And then Paul gives to Timothy some medical advice. I like this. Pastors need to take care of themselves physically. They need a little medical advice from time to time. And he says to Timothy, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. Apparently, Timothy had a queasy stomach. This job will give you a queasy stomach from time to time. And Paul prescribes a glass of wine just to settle him down. A little port for the problem. That's what he proposes I guess if he was writing today, Paul would suggest a few Tums for Tim. Chapter 5 closes. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. 
Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Here's the point. You can't always judge a book by its cover. Patience and discernment are needed when you size up a person for church leadership. Chapter 6 begins, Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have been believing masters, have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. You know, some historians estimate that there may have been as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, perhaps half the population. Many of the early Christians were slaves. And Paul tells them to be good and productive in what they do. You know, certainly the New Testament abhors slavery, but it never launches a frontal assault on slavery. Instead, God changes institutions by changing individuals. He knows that in hearts where Jesus is enthroned, slavery would soon pass. Men control other men because they lack love, and thus the New Testament puts an end to slavery with love, not with more laws. Paul encourages Timothy, teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. Steer clear of greedy people who use God to make a buck. Steer clear. These are the guys who teach that God wants you healthy and wealthy. Make that positive confession. You'll be driving that Lexus in no time. Steer clear of those people. From such withdraw yourself. Paul refutes this notion. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment, that's that's what you strive for. Real prosperity, prosperity has nothing to do with money. It's realizing that Jesus is all I need. That's real prosperity. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. I've never seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul. You bring nothing in, you're taking nothing out. Learn to be content with Jesus. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Once there was this New Orleans paddle boat sailed up and down the Mississippi. Gambling was its featured attraction. It was actually a floating casino. And when the ship sunk, its passengers dove into the river and they swam for the shore. But one man dove in and he never surfaced. It seems that before he jumped into the river, he first raced back into the casino. And he started filling up his pockets with gold coins. So that when he jumped into the water, his greed weighed him down and caused him to drown. You see, Paul sums this up. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of... It's not money that's evil. 
Money's a tool for good or bad. It's the love of money. This is the root of all evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's the love of money that causes compromise. It's that desire for one more lousy buck. That's the root of all evil. And then he says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Notice this. The best way to flee temptation is to pursue godliness. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Christianity is more than just keeping your nose clean and dotting your I's and crossing your T's. It's more than just what you don't do. It's proactive. It's pursuing. And it's fighting for the good things. And it's laying hold of what's eternal and what's good. This is Christianity. Then Paul writes, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which He will manifest in His own time. Jesus is returning to this earth. He's coming back. Question, when will He come? Answer, when it pleases Him to do so. In His own time. In the meantime, you and I need to be ready. He says, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an approachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. What a wonderful praise. Paul's saying we're going to need new eyes to handle the brightness of his glory. And then we're told in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be hot. Just because you got a little money, don't get proud. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Notice, when Paul refers to material wealth, notice what he calls it. Uncertain riches. <laughs> Check the stock market lately. You know what's happening to your investments? It's a little bearish out there. Did you know that? The value of your 401k is a bit up in the air these days. It's uncertain riches, isn't it? You know what Jesus said? He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Inflation eats it. Recession rusts it. Taxation steals it away. Riches are certainly uncertain. One man admitted, money talks, tells me goodbye. Don't trust in a fat bank account. Hey, one major illness and it can wipe it all out. That's why you need to trust in God. He says, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God is this life's only sure thing. And then he says, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works. If you want to be rich, here's real riches, that you're rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Giving your money to God in this life is a sure way to store up spiritual rewards in the life to come. You've probably heard it said, you can't take it with you. 
but you can send it on ahead. Here's Paul's final word. Stay off the rabbit trails. You know what he means. He says, oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Well, there you have it. 1 Timothy 4 through 6. Boy, we kicked some tires this morning, didn't we? We're kicking the tires. We're, we're learning that the church has muscle car power. Next week, we're going to celebrate our 30th year of ministry. And I'm, here's what I'm going to do. We kicked the tires. We popped the hood. We checked under the hood. Here's what we're going to do next week. I'm going to take you back to the day when God... When God handed me the keys, I'm going to take you back to that day. I hope you'll be here. Father, thank you for your love for us. And I pray, Lord, you'll continue to bless us. Bless this church, Lord. Make us a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.